Second home mate, 40 here. We're in Palm Beach. That's one of the northern beaches here in Sydney. The thunderstorm stopped. I was uh, hanging out under a bit of shoulder with the lifeguards telling them I was a tourist and uh, what should I you know, what should I look at around here they asked me where I was from I said LA and they said LA isn't that place filled with influences <laughs> I remember when I was going to Sierra Community College uh, in calculus class and had a friend there and I was talking about transferring to UCLA and and uh, you know he just starts talking about how sexually loose the women are in Los Angeles so I'm really susceptible too to yeah, believing in these, these vast stereotypes about people but uh, you know, there are lots of good people in LA and uh, yeah, lots, of, lots of good people everywhere and uh, yeah there are some sexually loose women in LA but there are also some in Rockland so the anonymity of the big city yeah certainly you know, opens up perhaps more possibilities for promiscuity than a, you know, a small town where everyone knows each other okay let's get some of the uh, wit and wisdom here from Richard Spencer and his latest yeah, show they, he is clearly a liar he lies about his own past he lies about his father um, he's said at some points that his father um, was like part of on the outer so this is uh, Richard uh, continuing on with his basic support for Kanye West and for Nick Fuentes and uh, now he's, he's going off on uh, Alex Jones and uh, leads to a conversation about the John Birch Society and uh, Revilo Oliver Revilo used to write for National Review. All of these conspiratorial groups and so on. In fact, his father was a John Birch Society member. So his father raised him in this stuff. And, you know, he is a liar, sure. So, from 2nd to 8th grade, I only went to 7th Adventist school. But then, in 1980, my father was removed from the Seventh-day Adventist Church ministry and I went to just an evangelical Christian school, Forest Lake Christian School. So I was no longer Seventh-day Adventist and I wasn't really one for doing my homework, doing my schoolwork. I've always pretty much been the kind of bloke who just wants to do what he wants to do, which counts for many of my failings in work and in love and in life. And so, in, during study hall, I would read these magazines that they had provided. And one of them would be U.S. News, and then another would be a magazine produced by the John Birch Society. So I got really steeped in the, the John Birch Society ideology, and pretty shocked to find that uh, this evangelical Christian uh, college that they promoted uh, that didn't allow interracial dating. It's, uh, is it Liberty University? Is that the one? But, uh, yeah, it's really easy to fall into this conspiratorial mindset. 
if you're not winning at life. Like if you're doing well at life, then I think you have much less need of, uh, you know, conspiracies. Because conspiracies just kind of buoy you up and make you feel like you're special. You know things that other people don't. So I was talking to the lifeguards about how to read, you know, dangerous currents. And they just kind of point out how the ocean was working. And I was able to kind of discern where the currents were. Apparently the, the riptides are most severe when the tide's going out. Right now the, the tide is in. So the rip is uh, pretty weak, even though the sign says dangerous currents. But, and even this stuff about Nick, I mean, yeah... Maybe not technically alive, but it's pretty mendacious and just pretty, so pretty his father, His father was in the John Birch Society. That explains a lot. So the turret doesn't... So Richard is giving Nick Fuentes uh, credit for his response to Alex Jones. Alex Jones went off on on uh, Nick as you know, some kind of Hitler lover. Nick had been on Alex's show three times. So... Yeah. Alex Jones is a volatile personality, right? So we shouldn't necessarily expect you know, very calm, considered uh, reactions from from Alex. And uh, Nick is not exactly someone who's you know, scrupulous and careful, always in the things that uh, he says. So I think my destination is the lighthouse up there. That's where everyone needs a destination. Far from the asshole. I mean, the John Birch Society is a kind of fascinating thing, and it's paradigmatic in the Trump era. Because so there was a man named a candy salesman, literally named Robert Welch, who founded this group. And keep in mind, look, I love Substack. It helps me. Okay, so interesting, meaning just totally whacked out in many things. So they thought that uh, President Dwight Eisenhower was a tool of the communist, you know, the communist movement. But uh, people can believe, you know, absolutely nutty things, but still be right about other things. You know, May 40 here, North Palm Beach, north of Sydney, 12.37 p.m. Monday, December 12, 2022. So two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. But uh, Robert Frost doesn't exactly explain how this divergent path made all the difference anyway. Here's uh, Richard Spencer talking about right-wing politics. Helps me keep in touch with you guys. But, you know, that, that's a Silicon Valley company. They are making a user-friendly platform for people like me. People who are tech-savvy, but, you know, I'm not going to go code anything outside of a little HTML that I... So he's talking about uh, the John Birch Society, which was a big deal when I went to Forest Lake Christian School. Hey, we, we got their publications. My God, how beautiful. How beautiful. Here and there. Um, if you were to form a, an alternative group, just a mass organization, you need secretaries, you need newsletters, you need you know, fundraising appeals... You need to keep tap. If someone moves, you have to change their address and the central. I mean, it is. And uh, more than all of that, you need a good story, a narrative people find compelling. It lets them feel like they understand what's truly going on. So, generally speaking, it wasn't doctors and lawyers 
accountants and dentists who are attracted to things like the John Birch Society, right? These conspiracy theories you're primarily to losers. So you're working in a job you can't stand. How's your marriage not going so great? Is your social standing not as high as you would like? Right? Have uh, many of the, your hopes and dreams not come true and seem further away than ever? Well, do I have a deal for you? I've got a narrative how even though much of your life is failing, right, you can find out how the world really works. Right. So here's the uh, here's the secret source. Here's the secret news about how the world really works. And so, people who are failing at much of life, you no know, conspiracy theory will fill them with you know, a sense of importance. It's, it's hard now, and imagine the kind of infrastructure you have to build up. And he was wealthy before him. You, you have to build up this infrastructure to create a mass movement among middle Americans. It actually is really impressive. And, you know, National Review, uh, they have a subscriber list and money comes across the table. You know, you're building a mass organization. You've got to kind of keep your finger on the pulse. It's a huge endeavor. It's, you know, I don't, it would be interesting to look at a history about how many people were actually employed just to create this. But it was the largest middle American conservative grassroots movement. Before all of the, before the, well before the Tea Party, well before, you know, Women for America First, America, well before Freedom Works. Yeah, that's an enormous appetite for conspiracy theories, for making people feel like they know the true stuff. And so even though life is failing in many different ways, at least they understand how the world really works. They see through the BS. Well before all the stuff, there was the John Birch Society. Now, they were goofy. Um, you know, Revelo Oliver was a member and speaker, and he, um, you know, brilliant man, professor. So, Revelo Oliver, right, he was a PhD, a tenured professor, he was writing for National Review, but uh, he re- really went off on the JQ, got expelled from the National Review crowd, though, I believe William F. Buckley still went to his funeral. And, uh, yeah, being brilliant... Uh, not necessarily a protection against an inordinate desire to feel important. And one way that uh, people like me get to feel important is feeling like we understand how the world really works. We see through the BS, right? Other people just see shadows on a cave. But we know how things really work. Illinois was fluent in Sanskrit. (laughs) Just insanely educated. Um, but uh, was also a, uh, you know, was one of us. He would probably resonate with a lot of this and, and probably even harder for it. Um, absolutely a white nationalist and, and a real intellectual. Also a friend of William F. Buckley. I believe, according to Paul Godfrey, William F. Buckley attended his funeral. Uh, so he was part of that. And Revelo Oliver would kind of, despite his intelligence, he, he would actually kind of go off the event, to be honest, on the Kennedy assassination, on just kind of declaring that the Jewish support yeah, Kennedy assassination is a good Rorschach test because the evidence is overwhelming that Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone, assassinated John F. Kennedy. But if your need for excitement and your need for you know, self-affirmation by believing something special that other people don't get right, is, is inordinately high, then you'll be particularly susceptible to believing in conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination and the like. Soviet menace was about to put everyone to death. I mean, he 
it's it's actually it's kind of cringe to be honest was it like a, yeah from what i read about him it was like a borderline psychosis almost like yeah he was one of those guys definitely mentally ill but also very high intelligence he had a tenured seat at the university of illinois in champagne you know so i used to think there are a lot of powerful thinkers in the distant right but then many of them were exposed during covid i think just believing you know crazy conspiracy theories like signing on with hydroxychloroquine and uh, the Zelenko protocol and new world order and all this all this nonsense and so I realized that many of these seemingly formidable intellects were just predisposed to crankery and nonsense but once they, you know, a lot of red pill people realized that uh, mainstream media and academia was lying about some things, then they just assumed, oh, they're, they're lying about everything. Very insightful, writes interesting stuff on religion. Really fascinating character. And a kind of... He had a kind of like, is He had a... Yeah, so someone can be absolutely crank on some topics, but have some wisdom and insight in other areas. So people vary depending on the situation right some situations they can be honest and trustworthy even wise and then other situations they can be absolutely nutters and so I guess we have to be alert to you know which situations bring out the best and the worst in people and a kind of strident tone though, that was, that was uh-huh. ultimately I mean, I, I... yeah tone is really important that's Mark Brahman speaking uh, you can learn so much about someone from their tone like, I feel like I can tell their level of, of mental health, their level of agency feeling, as though they can, you know, direct their path in the world, their you know, level of uh, optimism, self-mastery, uh, to the extent that they feel competent to wrestle with the problems that life throws before them. And I feel like I can pick that up, and I feel like most of us pick that up very quickly, just hearing someone's voice I agree that he was very intelligent and um, said useful things but there yes. was some tone that was a little too striking um, for instance if Mark ever wrote a sentence like you know within the next 10 years Soviet, the Jewish controlled Soviet Union is going to kill every blonde baby or something I'd be like Mark all right. see I'm not I'm Take not, I'm not quite there yet <laughs> I, haven't reached, I, I haven't reached that level of crank yet but <laughs> You can hear that Aussie accent. Oh, I just got to get a few more drinks in you, mate. You'll be there. I wouldn't worry too much about that, Mark. But I, mean, I admit I'm, I'm less familiar with Revelo Oliver, but from the description here, it reminds me of another figure from way back when, like Dr. Pierce, you know, who was literally, yes. a, literally a rocket scientist, but very much a kind of, you know, crankish and eccentric personality for sure. Yeah, so there's a book by one of William Pierce's children. Like, if you're curious about William Pierce, you read this, the story from his char. Apparently, he's just a uh, terrible father. Okay, do we want to go out the smuggler's track? Grade three? Or do we want to go up the access track? Maybe we'll go out the smuggler's track. Exactly. Like, William F. Pierce, uh, look, if you guys have an hour to spare, 
his speech, Our Cause, is actually really interesting. And it, it's kind of a, he kind of riffs off George Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman play. And, you know, he, he actually is brilliant. Even his commentary was kind of... Yeah, people can be brilliant in one area. Often academics, specialists, right? Can be brilliant in one area, get some fame, goes to their head, and they start speaking out strongly on all sorts of topics they don't know very much about. You know, cutting and insightful. But let's also be honest here, you know, the guy's also a crank. Being highly intelligent and a crank are not mutually exclusive, although they often are, but not always. Um, but yeah, a very similar to Pierce. That's that's the best comparison for them. He was expelled from the Birch Society. Actually, not, not to segue, but my funniest recollection of William Pierce is the Murdoch Murdoch episode where they gas him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're going to, you know, strike back at the colonies. You know, just, you could just hear it in his voice. You know, yeah. um, you know one day the yeah. American public will be fed up. You know, this kind of stuff, it just gets, a, it is a bit grating. And, and it's it, it's maybe kind of useless anger at some level. But, you know, um, I'm also but, not going to say it's um, it, it may not even be so much of a stretch to say that there's there's like truth in tone too. Like tone is not just tone; it's also yeah. That's a good point by Mark Brahman. And this whole conversation is uh, you know people who graduated or moved on from the alt right. So I remember Spencer were talking 2016 about how the alt right's the destination. Many people start off as libertarian or socialist or nationalist or Christian. And then they end up alt-right, and that you know, alt-right is the destination. People don't move on from being alt-right to libertarian. Well, that was a delusion. So very few people with anything to lose identify as alt-right anymore, right? And that's largely because of the choices and behavior of Richard Spencer. Essentially equating it with Nazism. It's also, there's some element of truth in tone, right? In other words, if, if the tone is wrong or if it's too strident or it's not told with a, the like sort of correct level of nuance, it, like it, it no longer sort of resembles reality, right? It yeah. just becomes boring. It seems like something that's not, like it seems like it's, you know, it seems like uh, with, uh, you know, the two examples that we've mentioned, it seems like that they're, they're in another place, they're on another realm and they're connecting with reality, uh, but, in, but in a kind of more remote way. They're not like yes. we are actually talking about human beings. Where we are talking about it has to somehow also relate to your experience in the world. You know, your sort of description of what's going on in the world also has to relate to a kind of um, a sensory perception of that experience. It can't just like uh, be this like overly kind of dramatic in sort of histrionic presentation, I guess. Um, yeah, and you know, I think it. Also- and then people respond to that, which gets them love and attention. Right? This you can call this audience capture. Develop an audience. And usually the more extreme you go, the more audience devotion you'll get. And if you're psychologically vulnerable to being adored, meaning if you have narcissistic tendencies that are a little bit out of control, right? moderate degrees of narcissism in many contexts those you, such as if you want to be a podcaster or a public speaker or a preacher. But if your need for admiration is outsized, then getting a little bit of it will have the same effect as alcohol has on the alcoholic. Also probably largely derived from both personal and intellectual loneliness in the sense that, you know, look. Yeah, personal and intellectual loneliness makes you more vulnerable and 
you don't have you know, a community who you can bounce off of and then you become much more vulnerable to doing stupid things. G'day mate, 40 here, North Palm Beach, North Sydney, listening to Richard Spencer here talking about the late William Pierce. Look, it, it, well, these days everyone's lonely, but, uh, you know, if you're an intellectual... No, no, not everyone's lonely. <laughs> uh, people who have marginalized themselves, people who significantly misread reality and alienated themselves from family and friends and community and from their educational institutions... Right. If you've been failing at life and not being a good friend and speaking and acting in antisocial ways, then then you're going to be much more likely to be lonely. If you're highly controversial, if, if if someone might get fired for you know meeting with you or something like that, then then it can get lonely. I, I actually think Nick is feeling some of this now. I, I absolutely felt it. But also, being intellectually lonely is is even kind of more difficult because you know I've. I'm not an expert on Pierce. I have I have listened to some of the stuff. I've um, I kind of skimmed through this book uh, that someone sent me. But at the end of the day, he's like a guy with a 150 IQ hanging around with KKK members. And you know, I don't know if he ever had anyone that he could bounce something off of. The only person he could bounce something off of was old Billy Bob, who you know has been arrested five times for armed robbery. <laughs> So there are a lot of rabbis with similar challenges. So Yehiel Yaakov Weinberg, a Srita Aish, was a great rabbi in Europe. He survived the concentration camps. He was living after World War II in Switzerland. And he got an invite to come to Yeshiva University. But he didn't want to come to Yeshiva University because then he would have been number two to the Rav, Joseph Bear Soloveitchik, right? And he didn't want to go to another institution because that also would have meant he would have been number two. So Yehiel Jakob Weinberg would rather be number one in this small Swiss community rather than being number two at Yeshiva University and be right in the thick of things. So rabbis have egos, political activists have egos, it's really easy to have an ego that, that gets out of control or that really works against your best interests. But some people just have to be the star and you know, other people would rather be part of an all-star team. So like someone like Dennis Prigger, right, he says, you know, I'd rather be part of an all-star team than be a star. That would, also, that would also affect his tone because he would naturally become more strident or become more, he would try to sort of dramatize things more uh, mm-hmm. to, get, to get a response from that audience, right? Because that audience would be more responsive with a dramatic tone, right? Mm-hmm. So, definitely. Yeah. So that may have affected um, <laughs> Yeah. But I guess to bring it back to what we were saying before, so, I mean, the, the, the uh, Birch Society was a major thing. They opposed the degree to which they were ever anti-Semitic and or racist I, I, is actually dubious. I mean, Revelo Oliver, as a member who was expelled, you know, after all, notwithstanding, they they probably did on some level oppose the Civil Rights Act for the same reason that all of these southern states voted for Goldwater in 1964. You know, they justified it through libertarianism, etc. And the membership of the John Birch Society was you know, pretty close to about 99% white. ultimately did it for racial reasons. Maybe reasons that were even unknown to themselves 
maybe. You know, like they weren't even willing in private to talk about what was happening, but they, they nevertheless acted on that behalf. And yeah, I mean, realignment in 1964, which kind of took until 1994 to really be fully operational, but it definitely started that. I mean, these are the same, the same. Well, Richard Nixon won on the Southern strategy in 1968, 72, which was opposing the civil rights movement, you know, appealing to Southern whites who started voting Republican for the first time, and the Republican Party, which had been anathema in the South, begins dominating the South. The same people who became Republicans were also like voting for the Dixiecrats in 1948 because Truman desegregated the military. So, I mean, it, it, it's regardless of how they talk about it, it's their, their actions speak louder than words. They're, they're motivated by these racial fears and, you know, so on. Um, but, so they did that. I don't, I don't know if there's anything... I don't know if there's some like smoking gun regarding anti-Semitism in the John Birch Society, although it is true. I mean, I kind of agree with the left where if you start going down these roads of... So I went to a John Birch Society meeting about uh, eight years ago, and I think it was about the, the threat of Islam to, to Europe, and I went with uh, a great, I think, Serbian intellectual... And yeah, there were like you know, there was like one or one person there. I think it was like very crankly anti-Jewish, but there were at least as many people there who are pretty passionately Zionist, pro Bibi Netanyahu. Conspira- conspiratorial thinking. You're not inevitably, but you're, you're pretty much likely to end up in some kind of you know conspiracy land about the Jews, and I, and I think you you end up in a place where you really do misunderstand them. You, you end up with the protocols of the elders of Zion, basically. Not necessarily. There are many counterexamples for that, but there's a tendency towards it. So I bet a lot of its members did go that way. But anyway, they were attacked by William of Buckley National Review. Now, back in 1963 or whenever it happened, I, or it might have actually been 64. It was, it, was, it was once Goldwater had been fully nominated. Um, National Review was the thing. I mean, there's no comparison in a way because there are just there were so few. There was no Internet, obviously. There's just so few conservative outlets that this was the movement right there. And they basically said, they, he attacked Robert Welch on the basis of his book, The Politician, but in this kind of crafty way, he didn't attack the members. And so he said, there are all these good members, but they've been led astray by Robert Welch. He was actually kind of bullshit, to be honest. I'm sure Robert Welch was, like, more sane. Right, you can only be led astray if you want to be led astray. Right? People can't force you to go down different intellectual paths unless those paths appeal to your nature. Same than 90% of his members. <laughs> but anyway, that's what he did. And it actually did work. Um, so members of the John Birch Society, like members of any other ostracized group, tend to be pretty sane in most of their decisions. It's just that they have an interest in a particular narrative that seems from an outside perspective insane. But in the way they... You know, run their families and do their jobs. Right, seem very sane. Right, so Hugo Mercier, French neuroscientist, makes this point in his excellent book, Not Born Yesterday, that uh, like believing in nonsense about some abstract issue doesn't uh, necessarily shape how you, how you live your life. Uh, there's no price to be paid. It's just uh, 
you get entertainment and meaning from believing in the conspiracy. And so, a lot of conspiracies don't necessarily uh, ruin your at life. Least coincided. Uh, you know, not didn't necessarily work. It at least coincided with the Birch Society. I believe the Birch Society is still around. I think so. Um, I think around. Yeah. And I remember going to CPAC 10 years ago or so, and they actually had a booth. And it was actually really funny because they had these full color, like, printouts where they had, like, you know, for a constitutional America or something. And they had, like, multiracial children. So it was like, oh, they clearly picked it, like, they clearly taken it from, like, a stock photo. So there was, like, a black kid, like, you know, like an Asian kid, and then a white kid, and then a Mexican kid. Like, it was just so, it was almost like, I, I don't even think a liberal would be that, like, you know, blatant or something. It was just PC and. They also would probably tell people that, like, oh, we don't believe in conspiracy theories or something. And it's like, okay, well, then what are you fucking doing? So it's just ultimately, it's ultimately devolved into, like, basic bitch conservatism, doc, the, like, parchment worship, you know, the Constitution. It's like, yes. you know, like, this is why Republicans, this is why, like, it's ultimately so irredeemable, American conservatism. It's okay, this is nonsense. Conservatism, basic bitch conservatism, Republicanism, it's not irredeemable. Right? Most important message that Republicans and conservatives offer is let's lock up the people who commit violent crime keep them locked up until at least age 50 right? you lock these people up you would significantly decrease the murder rate and you would double the quality of life for Americans who are being affected by violent crime so you don't have to be an explicit victim of violent crime to be victimized by it in that you live a smaller life, you go fewer places, you have to spend more on security, you have to spend more of your mental powers thinking about you know, staying safe. Right, that's basic bitch conservatism and republicanism and lock up violent criminals for a long time. That's a very important message. To think that this is irredeemable is absurd. I guess it's boring. You lock up people who do bad things. You keep them locked up. It's not exciting. It's not cutting edge. It just works. Just dramatically improves the quality of life for millions of Americans. And then the other facets of basic bitch conservatism, which would dramatically improve the quality of life, is to stop subsidizing bad behavior, start incentivizing good behavior. So right now, if you go on disability, people tend to stay on disability for life. Well, maybe we should change those incentives around. It's just, ugh. I find yeah. it more odious as not operating philosophy than like leftism at this point. Yeah. yeah, why do you find that odious? Like, lock up violent criminals and restructure social welfare spending and taxation so that you incentivize good productive behavior and you disincentivize antisocial behavior. But, that, you know, that's, that's what it is. And, you know, I, I think it's very interesting. I think they're almost headed back. I mean, this, this is another, I'm, uh, this is a digression a bit, but I, I think I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which the conservative movement is headed backwards. And I don't mean that as value judgment. Headed backwards to where they were maybe 15 years ago. Um, one interesting thing, I just saw two little notes on this. Um, I'm taking. G'day, mate. 40 here. This is alright, ain't it? We're at the lighthouse here, north uh, Palm Beach, northern Sydney. 
the thunderstorms have gone, the rain is gone, I can see clearly now, there are no obstacles in my way. Right, what a wonderful time to listen to a little uh, Richard Spencer. I'm taking care of my kids right now, so I, I don't have as much time to... No worries, Richard. Um, the Gay Marriage Bill, the Defense of Marriage Act, was actually supported by fewer Republicans than it was like a few months ago. And Ben Shapiro has done something where he kind of danced around issues, but he's basically um, going after the civil rights of like, well, the government doesn't have the authority to force you to serve someone. And this is all related to this um, Supreme Court case, which is one of these just totally um, synthetic, uh, you know, uh, complaints that's based on a woman who doesn't want to, in the hypothetical situation, a web designer, uh, she's using speech, language, code, and she doesn't want to hypothetically be forced to code a gay website or a gay marriage website or something. Okay, it seems legitimate. Sometimes synthetics are best. It's not like you know, natural legal cases. You know, they're always the best. Sometimes synthetics is the way you want to go. So it's just this, like, fraught, you know, uh, case where... Yeah, why should someone be forced to bake a, a wedding cake or design a website you know, celebrating something that uh, you believe, to the core of your being, is an abomination? So, you extend rights for gays at the expense of rights for non-gays. I don't know, give me a break. And it's not Bake the Cake, which we did eight years ago or something. They've, they've done the coding specifically because it's speech. Um, because, I, you know, at the end of the day, you could, if, you, if the Civil Rights Act is operative, then you can make a strong case that, like, ba you know, baking someone a cake is ultimately no different than serving someone at a restaurant. You can't discriminate in such a situation. Um, but this, again, we're getting into speech. But, you know, it's all just kind of bullshit. I don't know about you. I, I prefer freedom of association. So if you don't want to serve someone, you don't serve someone. I allow people to hang out with whoever it is they want to hang out with and bake, you know, only those cakes they believe in. Yeah, it's all like conservative, it's all conservative like autism at this point. It just... It's conservative autism, right? It is about, you know, a fundamental understanding of the self. It comes back to, you know, do you believe that we're basically good and that we just need to give individuals and their forms of sexual expression like more and more freedom? Or do we have more critical understanding of human nature, understand that you have to put barriers in the way of self-destruction, and that uh, traditional ways that usually work out better than newfangled ways of organizing families and communities? Right? Why should someone's freedom to practice their religion and build you know, their own life and community you know, be forcefully compromised to you know, be in service of you know, whatever is the new sexual deviance of the moment? It's like a road to nowhere. It's just They just keep going back to the well, and there's like nothing there, right? Also, it's, it's all based on... And ben Shapiro said something to this effect. He actually didn't make logical sense, but he was actually getting at something. Isn't it fascinating that it's all about your... Like, if you have a holy book, you're allowed to discriminate, but not on the basis of race. So, like, you can't say, I don't want to serve black people at my restaurant because I'm, I don't want to. Yeah, so conservatives don't 
make a good case to their own values. Why? Because the playing fields are t tilted so that the liberal left controls the playing fields in which conservatives are forced to operate. The liberal left dominates almost all of our institutions. Therefore, conservatives have to argue with one, one arm tied behind their back. And so they just don't sound as compelling or as rational as people on the liberal left because they're fighting on the enemy's battleground. Right? Preserving a right to choose you know, which weddings you celebrate, which cakes you bake, you know, what type of websites you design, it should be a fundamental right. And I don't have any holy justification for that. But you can say, I don't, want to, I don't want to serve gay, I don't want to write code for gay marriage websites because of my religion. But you can't, like... So, it's not easy to make a case against gay marriage, all right? Because on the liberal basis of equality, you know, what are you? Are you against equality, mate? But you know, paying respect for tradition the way human beings have traditionally organized their communities, their marriages, and their families. Right? We, we don't know what removing the bulwarks of tradition will do. Right? We don't know how gay marriage will affect men who are traditionally reluctant to get married. Now, will this make them even more reluctant? Ostensibly, at least, a secular person could, doesn't, at least in the way that it's written, he doesn't have the ability to discriminate against gays. Like, you have to be religious. But then, at the same time, also on the... Well, what we're doing here is we're privileging someone who can make a cogent, rational explication of their point of view over someone who just has an instinct that uh, they don't want to be associated with something. So someone who just revolts against you know, some new modern liberal way of organizing families and community life Right, they're not necessarily going to have the most cogent, rational-sounding argument, but having an internal emotional reaction isn't inherently inferior to simply having you know, a well-thought-out, rational response based in religious text. Right? You might just feel uncomfortable with making certain websites or baking certain cakes, and why should the high IQ right, be privileged over you? Why should the those who can make a high IQ case, whatever it is they don't like, why should they have privilege over you? On this ledger, uh, if your religion can't make you racist, is another assumption. So there's no case in which your religion will tell you to be racist. So that's moot. But your religion... You know, maybe there's no such thing as racism. Right? Maybe there's no such thing as this invented you know, moral horror of uh, discrimination on the basis of race. Right? Maybe people just naturally and healthfully, in many circumstances, simply prefer the company of people like them. And race may be a component of that, along with religion, culture, national origin, etc. Religion might tell you not to, to be against gay marriage. Just, as you said, just conservative autism. It's just... There's, there's nothing autistic about it. Right? Preferring traditional ways of organizing families and preserving the right to turn down work. Right, that's not autistic. Ridiculous. You know, and it is kind 
it, it's almost like pro-religion because it's like you know if you want to be against gay marriage you have to thus be join these christians look it's just easier to make case against things like gay marriage if you're religious it's easier to make a case against things like pornography if you're religious right? there are a lot of moral stances that are easy to make if you're religious and you can tie it into a religious text Christian groups so that you can cite you know chapter and verse from a, one of a, you know some psalm where he said you know holy spirit you know uh, be before me two men can't get married together amen <laughs> Right, so if religion's kind of a foreign language to you, then, yeah, it seems ridiculous that uh, some people base their lives on the teachings of God, what they believe to be God, you know, as opposed to those who, who base their lives you know, on the teachings of the New York Times, which is inherently superior. Go ahead. I hate these people, I hate these people so much, it actually makes me want to join a gay pride. Right? There's absolutely no reason to hate people who prefer traditional ways of organizing families and communities. Right. No, especially yeah. Shapiro. I mean, the vast majority of his takes are... I'm, I'm starting to sound like Eric Stryker, so I'm going to blame some people, but um, he is so subversive. I mean, obviously, that's good. He is very intelligent. He's just weak. Uh, ben Shapiro is subversive of what? Right. I mean, apparently he's subversive of Apollonian... Apollonianism. Apollonianism. What do we have here? Right, so if you're, if you're a Christian, right, and uh, you take positions, say, contrary to Judaism or Islam, or contrary to secularism or atheism, you're, you're subversive of those other traditions. Right? If you stand for one thing, right, you're going to be subversive of things that contradict what you stand for. Right? If you love something, you're going to hate that which threatens it. Oh, this is what he's doing. He's leading Gentile conservatives down the road to ruin. Well, you can't lead people down an intellectual road unless they are already predisposed to go there. You can't trick people into adopting an ideology that is contrary to their nature. Like Nazism and communism, with all their vast propaganda machines, were not changing hearts and minds. They were reinforcing people who already believed like them, but they weren't making any progress with people who believed differently. And so this, this naive view that you know Ben Shapiro is just bewitching you know, all these Gentile conservatives who are just too stupid to see through his shtick. Right? That's ridiculous. We did not evolve to be gullible. We weren't born yesterday. But we, we evolved incredible tools for detecting when other people are trying to manipulate us against our own best interests. And if we didn't have these evolutionary adaptations, we wouldn't be here today. Yeah, I really, I, you're doing well to listen to it, Richard, because I listen to five minutes, I'll give you a... And, well, it, it's uh, because the liberals say that blah, 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 blah. And let's go, yeah. fuck you, next. Right. Yeah, Ben Shapiro is not an intellectual feast. All right? He has an audience of, of people who don't want to think too deeply about politics and cultural issues. And he speaks very rapidly, takes the most conservative positions possible. You know, he's shallow and glib. And, you know, he's got this upper midwit audience who don't want to go deep. He, he does almost make, these, these, the conservatives are just so, like, goofy about 
what they're saying you know like i'm not i have nothing against lgbt people personally it's just the text that i believe in tells me that i can't affirm a marriage or something it's just so okay the arguments people offer aren't the real arguments right people almost never say what they mean they almost never mean what they say right it is normal natural even healthy that one would be filled with you know feelings of abhorrence at you know certain visceral sexual practices that are completely contrary to one's own orientation I think that's pretty normal so the traditional Jewish and, and Christian understanding of the origins of the Pentateuch is that Jesus Christ what's that is that uh, comes from God what the hell all these noises going on around me just as long as there aren't any snakes. I do not like snakes. Oh, man. <sighs> so, traditional conception is the, the Pentateuch came from God, either whether it's you know, dictated directly to Moses at Mount Sinai, or God inspired Moses to write it down. Jesus, what the hell are all these creepy sounds of animals? All right, so... Traditional conception, you know, dictated by God to Moses at Mount Sinai, or you know, dictated by, by God to Moses over many years, or inspired by God. Right? These are the traditional conceptions, and I have no problem with the traditional conceptions. You know, I'm not not here to disparage them. I'm also fine with the secular conceptions. So I think we can learn a lot from uh, secular scholarship and from traditional religious scholarship. Bloody hell. G'day mate, 40 here at Palm Beach, northern Sydney. And you know, I, I live life as an Orthodox Jew, but I don't expect you know Orthodox Judaism to you know answer every problem that I have in life. Like, if I get sick, I don't go to a Talmudic doctor. If I want to know about physics, I I don't study the Talmud, right? I want to know what physicists have to say. If I want to know about snakes, I go to someone who's an expert in snakes. So, we live in a world where... In my experience, you know, one narrative is not sufficient. It's not like one overarching narrative just gets it done. We need many top-down models, many bottom-up models for how the world works. Now, I came up a much easier way than I'm going down right now. But uh, I've got enough sophisticated top-down and bottom-up models to get me through this mess just as long as I don't encounter any snakes. As long as there there are no snakes, I'll be fine. So, I consult chemists to find out about chemistry, biologists to find out about biology, Talmud scholars to find out about the Talmud. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way to get down. What the heck? All right, my 
My models aren't working. What the heck, guys? So life is confusing, challenging, and it helps to have models that, that, that mirror that, that enable you to navigate that. And I came up an easier way, I think, I've been trying to go down. I think this is a better path. So, I enjoy reading about what people wrote and thought 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. And so I simultaneously acknowledge that usually there are more sophisticated models and, you know, more up-to-date findings to you know, shed light on whatever it is that people were claiming a long time ago, but still, there are you know, certain mysteries of the human soul that uh, people like the, the writers of the Bible, or Shakespeare, or Homer, you know, did a really good job of plumbing. I think it's naive to hope that you know, just one story, one one narrative, you know, one one sacred text is going to be adequate to all the challenges before us. Oh man! You beauty. I see people, I see civilization. G'day mate, 40 here at Palm Beach, northern Sydney. And you know, I, I live life as an Orthodox Jew, but I don't expect you know Orthodox Judaism to you know answer every problem that I have in life. Like if I get sick, I don't go to a Talmudic doctor. I, if I want to know about physics, I, I don't study the Talmud, right? I you know, want to know what physicists have to say. And if I want to know about snakes, I you know, go to someone who's an expert in snakes. Right? So we live in a world where, in my experience, you know, one narrative is not sufficient. It's not like one overarching narrative just gets it done. We need many top-down models, many bottom-up models for how the world works. Now, I came up a much easier way than I'm going down right now. But uh, I've got enough sophisticated top-down and bottom-up models to get me through this mess, just as long as I don't encounter any snakes.
right? as long as there, there are no snakes I'll be fine so I consult chemists to find out about chemistry biologists to find out about biology you know, Talmud scholars to find out about the Talmud there's got to be a better way there's got to be a better way to get down what the heck all right, my my models aren't working. What the heck, guys? Oh. So life is confusing, and challenging, and it helps to have models that, that that mirror that, that enable you to navigate that. And I came up an easier way, I think, than I've been trying to go down. I think this is a better path. So, I enjoy reading about what people wrote and thought 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. And so I simultaneously acknowledge that usually there are more sophisticated models and, you know, more up-to-date findings to, you know, shed light on whatever it is that people were claiming a long time ago but still there are are certain mysteries of the human soul that uh, people like the the writers of the Bible or Shakespeare or Homer you know did a really good job of plumbing so I think it's naive to hope that you know, just one story, one one narrative, you know, one one sacred text is going to be adequate to all the challenges before us. Oh man! You beauty. I see people, I see civilization.